welcome to the SAP Experts Podcast. My name is Steven Spears, Product Marketing Manager for SAP Customer Experience by Day and host of the Future of Customer Engagement and Experience Podcast by Night. And just one of our great hosts here for the SAP Experts Podcast. Today's episode is all about direct-to-consumer commerce and how some of your favorite brands are finding new ways to deliver value and foster a relationship directly with customers like you like never before. I'm joined by Paul Smith. Paul is the Global Industry Principal for Consumer Products at SAP Customer Experience and has strategically consulted and delivered digital transformation solutions around customer experience for some of the world's largest luxury brands, supermarkets, CPG companies, retailers. Paul's worked with them, so he knows. In this discussion, we go through the growth of selling to -to direct-to-consumer and how it's becoming a large piece of many consumer products companies these days, and then dive into the benefits and the challenges that come with doing it. All of that on this episode of the SAP Experts Podcast. Fantastic, Stephen. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm curious how you, how do you get a title like that? I feel like it's a very specific, but also very much earned title of an industry principle specifically for consumer products. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite a mouthful as a title. Um, and it, it, yeah, it's relatively, relatively specific in that my areas of expertise are consumer products and customer experience, and that I do it at a global level. So I have to have insights into what's happening in Asia Pacific, Southeast Asia, Latin America, uh, Europe, North America, uh, in the world of consumer products. So from everybody from like the big global players down to kind of like those digital natives that are taking share from those big global players. So I have to have my finger on that pulse and then understand how SAP solutions suit the needs of all of that very wide and diverse kind of range of companies. I mean, it's no secret that this uh, idea of direct consumer has grown massively, but I'm curious from your perspective, is it still a new territory? Is this still uncharted waters? It's interesting in that it's, for some it's new territory, for some it's uncharted waters. I mean, it's a trend that really, it's been going to some extent since people have been selling products on the internet, but it really has accelerated in the last decade. And and being quite specific, direct consumer is where a manufacturer sells directly to the end consumer. Because most manufacturers, historically, for the last 40 or 50 years in the world of consumer products, um, they only accessed consumers through their retail partners. And that usually meant they sold to distributors, to wholesalers, who would then sell on to retailers, and then the retailers would put it in a store, somebody would come and pick it up and buy it, like the product, and then buy it again. And the consumer was completely opaque. So it's why huge amounts of dollars over the last 50 years have been spent on everything from market research to shopper marketing um, to really help the manufacturers understand the mindset of the consumer. And that's all kind of changed with direct consumer. That ability now exists to have a direct relationship. And even like 15 years ago, there was interesting research that pointed out that actually consumers were increasingly visiting manufacturers' websites, just assuming they could buy directly from them. And 15 years ago, you couldn't. You, almost <laughs> nobody did it. So, And then a few people started pioneering and breaking the mold. And some of them were like uh, Nespresso, you know, invented a whole ecosystem and a whole way of approaching the market. And then the things that they learned and pioneered were picked up by people like Dollar Shave Club, uh, 
um, who iteratively kind of improved the model. They improved the value exchange for the consumer. They found smart ways of reaching the consumer and advertising to them. And other people have copied different bits of those models. And some bits of consumer products are moving much faster to D2C than others. So cosmetics, skincare, pet food, still the coffee products in particular as well, moving very, very rapidly to D2C. Others moving a little bit more slowly. So there's more challenges with things like frozen foods. So, but even ones that people thought were um, moving glacially towards D2C, like alcoholic beverage. I mean, last year in North America, the fastest growing marketplace was Drizzly. So because all of that alcohol consumption that didn't happen out of home, all shifted to home last year. And uh, even where there were restrictions and limitations with delivering products and having it signed for, people started overcoming that. So, yeah, so interesting dynamics at the moment, depending on the kind of sub-industry within CPG. That's interesting. So is it almost a situation where uh, every type of business is eventually probably going to need to migrate to this? Or is there a line you can kind of draw of, yeah, you know, eventually we'll hit a point where every product that can be sold direct to the consumer is already and, and these things can't be done that way? Ooh, that, it's a really interesting question. So, because uh, historically in CP, people who were doing direct were seeing maybe two, at most 5% of their business, they do direct. The majority business was still B2B orientated to distributors, wholesalers, through retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's certainly the pandemic has accelerated the upset of that. There was general drift towards it getting into the higher unitary percentages for some maybe getting past into the 10 to 20% space. Mm. You know, we've seen big CPG companies who last year, like 15% of their revenue was coming kind of direct. And then there are some people who are really putting the foot on the gas of direct, and that's people like Nike. So Nike are already at 40% of their business is now direct. Their majority business within three years will be direct to consumer. And they're already kind of closing relationships with some of their wholesale and retail partners because they want to own the whole consumer experience. They want to give people that fully branded experience. They want to give people the choice, the selection, the personalization that they can achieve from that. And they're doing it more profitably and they're keeping customers happier by doing it as well. So yeah, quite a shift. Yeah. Yeah. And you started to hit on there too. What, what was kind of my follow-up thought was, what are the benefits of shifting your business? You know, obviously, if a Nike of the world is willing to shift at this point 40% of their business, there, there's tangible benefits there. And you hit on a few of them, but I'm curious what you see yeah. as, as really the main benefits uh, of moving this way. So, I mean, really, the main benefits are that you have consumer insight. So, and you're able to better spot trends, you're able to better kind of reformulate your proposition and your products with that kind of direct feedback you're getting from consumers. You're seeing what's selling, you're seeing what's not selling. You can understand everything from the delivery experience and the unboxing experience to people celebrating your product. It's much easier when you've got a direct relationship. Uh, So you get benefits in that in terms of you can improve your products faster than your competitors. So, but also it's potentially, if you do it right, a more profitable route as well. So because every step in that value chain in the historical CPG world has to take a cut. There's a percentage that goes at each different point. I mean, some of the digital native pioneers in this space actually play on that as part of their value proposition to the consumer. So one of our um, uh, MRC's customers, he's uh, on the marketing side, he's Beauty Pie. 
And Beauty Pie's CEO, Marcia Kilgore, is kind of like on record as saying, you know, my consumers are smart, they can find me, and they also know I'm going to kind of reduce the value chain for them. So what previously would have gone to the department store, to the distributors, I'm passing that all on as a saving directly to the consumers. And as a result, she's producing the same quality of cosmetics and skincare products direct to consumer for a fraction of the price of some of their historically branded equivalents. So, and that, that's where part of the proposition comes in, in terms of working out how much of that extra profit do you keep yourself and how much of it do you switch into a value exchange for the consumer and how much are you offering increased convenience to the consumer as well? That's interesting. I mean, the the one example I always think of, and it's because it's relevant to my life, is um, a brewery. So we've got, you know, a lot of breweries here in town. Yeah. And, you know, obviously they can and they'll sell to a distributor who then sells to the grocer who then sells to you. But now with these tap rooms and things like that, it's direct to consumer. You go and drink it straight from the draft where they brewed it. And there's no costs in between you and and them brewing that. So now when you buy a $5 beer at the tap room, it maybe costs them 25 cents to to get you that beer. And then the rest is, is profit on their side, or at least, you know, revenue. Um, so it's interesting because I always think of that as the example of you started with this one can and everybody got their share all the way till it got into your fridge. Whereas now you've got a glass that is, you know, 25 cents and it's yours. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, craft, craft beer has been one of the really disruptive parts of, uh, in particular, the alcoholic beverage industry, mm-hmm. because there's loads and loads of craft brewers. And the way they tend to operate is get a small fan base, get themselves into some tap rooms, but also make sure that they've got a, uh, a canning line and a facility for production so that once people become aware of a particular product, they can then actually go and buy it direct. So, you know, that's how people like BrewDog started. It's how uh, even really small outfits uh, like Polly's Brews or, um, I mean, every region and every country has got its specialist kind of craft brewers working on different flavours and different expressions and different forms of kind of hops and different types of of beer. But fundamentally, it really, really suits direct consumer. So... Uh, because you're not going to get ranged in the Walmarts and in the Targets and in the Krogers actually very easily when you're a small operation, but get yourself into a tap room, get yourself a local fan base, and then start to spread out from there, but make your product available direct to consumer. Um, It's usually kind of like, uh, if not the first, the second step that most of the craft brewers do. So yeah, yeah, my my fridge is full of craft beer that I bought (laughs) just like direct from small places and people that then do like curated bundles. So uh, like I, I mean, there are big players now in the game. We, we're running their own operations, like Beerwolf, mm-hmm. uh, and but that still allows you to access really interesting, innovative flavors. So uh, yeah, so and it so all comes when, direct. Yeah, when when you look at it that way, it seems like a no brainer. Of okay, you know, I I can cut out this process or at least own this process of going straight to yeah. the consumer. But I feel like that would naturally present. Uh, at least a few challenges that come with, you know, setting something up this way, which might be why it's it's taken longer for that ship to happen. I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there are some really, there are some interesting challenges in the world of D2C. And sometimes when I'm kind of coaching people in this space, say some people think D2C is, is it's about commerce. 
And actually, it's way wider than commerce. You've, there's, I always say there's, there's five big things you've got to think about. First of all, it's the product proposition, which uh, ultimately you've got to get it down to being the right product in the right place at the right price and reducing your new product introduction risk and cost, which means you've got to think about everything from the packaging through to your provenance, through to your brand story, and through to the purpose of the product. Uh, and that sometimes means reconsidering for existing players. How do you reconsider what the proposition of your product is or your bundle of products? Uh, because you can do it through curated bundles. You can do it through subscription services. What kind of angle are you going to take? One of the other bigger areas that people face as a challenge is acquiring customers. The thing that moves the needle in D2C more than anything else is your approach to customer acquisition. Um, and most of the digital natives out there do it digi digitally and digital first or sometimes digital only. And they will spend a lot of time on getting advertisement and media spend really honed. So doing that in the social space, in the search space, making sure that kind of like every dollar that they spend is properly targeted, that they're approaching the segments of people most likely to convert. We're seeing people now doing things like uh, using even kind of uh, kind of dynamic creative in advertisements. So the advertisement and the video that you see responds and is presented to you based on the attributes of you as a consumer. So it might be aware of your location. It might know something about your preferences and behaviors. And you can actually change the video that you serve to an individual consumer based on that. We're working with partners with our SAP.io startup with people like Sunday Sky who specialize in doing that in terms of taking the data out of the CDP or the marketing system and kind of going, here's a creative treatment that we think is best going to convert this customer. Because you could spend obscene amounts of money in digital ad spend. And lots of people have, certainly over the last 12 months. Loads of people cancelled their out-of-home advertising. All shifted to Facebook and Google and TikTok and Twitch and lots of other players. Um, so it's, it's easy to spend money in that space, but you've got to be looking on your return and investment in doing it and kind of who and how, uh, who you acquire from it as well. So but it's not the biggest, those aren't the biggest challenges. Usually the biggest challenge is fulfillment. So mm -hmm. when, when people step into DC, if it's a large existing CPG player, their entire business history, sometimes going back over a hundred years, is they've optimized everything for B2B. So because 95, 98% of their business was selling to distributors, wholesalers, and retailers, everything from their production and warehousing operation is designed to ship trucks full of pallets containing cases of product. And it's optimized to do that. So the warehouses don't have space to run a pick, pack, and ship operation for just one individual consumer consignment or even just a, a single item. Most of them can't do it. So they have to go and partner with third-party logistics companies who specialize in that space. And that usually represents additional cost in distribution. And it means you've got to connect your systems to those three PLs to see the inventory. You've got to make sure that you're doing fulfillment in the SLAs that are required. Because some people will use marketplaces to approach customers. So they'll sell the product on marketplace and they may fulfill it themselves. So, but if you don't fulfill it in the timescale that's required, you could get delisted from those marketplaces. So there's, there's a lot of potential pain in that chain. And it reminds me as well, it's kind of a challenge is, and I'm going to be really specific here, is some people say to me, oh, we do direct to consumer. We, we sell our products on marketplaces. Mm. And you do just want to kind of reach through this because we're all remote at the moment. You want to reach through the screen and slightly slap them and kind of go, that's not direct to consumer. That, that's just you accessing the consumer through the world's biggest retailers. 
They just happen to be businesses that solve that fulfillment problem. Yeah, well, and I was gonna—I was actually gonna follow up and ask you that because I—I was thinking that that is direct to consumer now. You're not going through a retailer; you're going straight to them on this platform. But it's not. You're saying it's—it's it's really not. So because it's so just—well, it, well, yeah, and it's really interesting because some people think marketplaces equals direct to consumer. Marketplaces in my world is, is business to business to consumer. And the big difference is the marketplace owns the customer and they own the customer's data and they own the consent from that customer. They can continue the dialogue, the relationship, the communication, the giving them offers, the pulling them in with notifications from apps. Um, whereas if you are the manufacturer of that product, and even if you're fulfilling it to them and you know their address, you don't have consent to use any of that data for marketing purposes or maintaining that relationship. You don't see the sales figures. You don't. You just know what volume you shifted to them. You don't know who bought it, why they bought it, when they bought it, what else they were considering. Whereas the marketplaces have all that insight. And the marketplaces historically have used that insight um, to then drive kind of better deals, uh, and to launch their own products in some cases as well. And because there's loads of third-party sellers in marketplaces, it ends up to some degree with a race to the bottom in terms of price. So marketplaces, they are absolutely an opportunity, but it's potentially also a low-profit route and a route through which you don't have access to the consumer data. Pure direct-to-consumer, you've got much more, many more advantages in that you have that direct relationship you can control the brand experience and you've got more control and levers over the profitability as well. So while marketplaces absolutely is a, is a complete mix of how you are reaching consumers, it's essential and it's important because you need to be listed there. But if you're seeing increasing sales volumes going through marketplaces, it should also tell you that consumers have unmet needs. And that means consumers are resorting to marketplaces as a route to purchase. It might be through convenience, it might be because they're prime subscribers and they feel like they've already paid for the delivery. Um, but that consumer's not getting your product in the way in which they could get it. And you could be selling, you could be the one that has that first party relationship and selling it directly to them rather than leaving it to the marketplaces to hoover up all of that lovely data. So, yeah, yeah. it's about unmet needs and about if you're seeing increased volume through marketplaces, you're probably telling you you're missing a trick or two in what you could be doing with DTC. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how then, uh, because as, as I'm thinking about it, as a leader of one of these companies, you know, it, it makes sense because you're, you're fostering a direct relationship. But I'm sure one of the things would be, I, I'm not even sure either where I start or where my business is at at this point to know uh, how do I start to shift things into a direct-to-consumer model or, or move things in that area? How, how would you... Or how do you help self-assess what makes sense uh, when making this transition? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. Um, I mean, the thing to do in that kind of self-assessment, first of all, is, is look at, are you losing market share to uh, digital natives that have got propositions that are, are kind of bumping into and eroding your categories? Are you seeing an increase in kind of sales through marketplaces? And are you just through research seeing kind of interesting new products arriving that is a potential risk for you in the uh, medium and long term as well? I mean, this, this happened kind of like with the men's, groom, men's grooming space with the arrival of Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, 
who within kind of like a five-year space took huge amounts of market share away from the existing uh, incumbents in terms of Procter & Gamble and Edgewell in particular, eventually driving them to, to, in one case, actually acquiring Dollar Shave Club and the other one attempting to acquire Harry's. Um, it's If you don't pay attention to it, you can suddenly find that somebody's actually hoovering up not just the edges of your consumers, but really kind of making inroads into your into your heartland of your consumer base as well. Um, and you need to be kind of open to understanding those market shifts, analysing them, and then working out how you come up with a proposition that competes and suits and meets those consumers on their needs and offers them something more compelling and more convenient. And keeping an eye on those costs and the profitability, it's what we see a lot of people moving into trying to reformulate what they're doing into a subscription service because mm -hmm. the cost of acquisition is all on that first purchase if you can get somebody to do repeat purchases or to have monthly replenishment of their dog food that's the that's just extra money in the bank that's just that the smart people in the space are looking about full customer lifetime value and investing mm -hmm. in acquiring them knowing that they're going to be able to then have a relationship over a much longer time period so so, so then would you say, looking at how you kind of broke out the different areas of challenges of, you know, really looking at product, looking at the marketing piece and then fulfillment, is there one of those areas that are a good place to start or is it you kind of have to look at them all at the same time? Um, you kind of, you do have to look at them all at the same time. So, because we've seen some people just focus on like the direct selling channel. And if you do that and not focus on how you do the acquisition piece or how you think about the product proposition or how you think about fulfillment, or even kind of like the fifth area, which I didn't mention so far, is the analysis and insights piece, which is all about how you get that consumer data, how you survey consumers, how you understand their behavior, how you look at marketplace pricing, how you look at uh, market demand as well. And there, there are kind of, again, some SAPIO partners we've recently started working with are people like AlgoPix. So AlgoPix uh, can help people understand what their market share is across marketplaces and different channels. I mean, brilliantly, they, you know, they told, they, they've told me things like, I can tell Walmart how many rubber dinghies they're going to sell in Nevada next week with around about 90% accuracy. <laughs> That's so, crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, but you, you, in terms of refining your proposition, right, that's the level of kind of insight you need to be able to bring into the mix. So, and to some extent, if you want to be properly successful in DTC, you've got to tackle all of them. So, but really, the beating heart, though, is you need the ability to put out a commerce and a, a rich experience, but usually at relatively low opportunity cost, because it's the kind of thing you're going to iteratively improve. You're going to have to have a test and learn mentality in this space as well. Certainly for an existing CPG company, you don't inherently have retail DNA in your blood. And to be in the DC space, you need retail DNA to some extent. And that means you're going to, it's a learning experience. So retailers have got merchandisers, for example, who will sort out exactly what product appears where in the digital store. But when you're a CPG company starting out, you know what? You can use things like AI tools that automate some of that for you, which reduces your costs. It makes you faster to market. So it's looking for solutions that offer some of that kind of smart capability to do something actually relatively quickly, relatively low cost, but no less sophisticated than actually what you can achieve as a full flight retailer as well. 
Yeah, I do have my only suggestion is build a buffer between the uh, the if you're doing the the voice listening for targeted advertising, at least give me like a day buffer between you show up and add on the feed. Like if we're talking three minutes since we had the conversation, it, it's that's not working. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> that does just look creepy. Yeah, I was so, gonna say I, I yeah. had to I had to get that personal thought out there. But uh, you mentioned not having the uh, the retail in their DNA. So theoretically having at least certain products going direct to consumer. Is there a worry though, that you might be cannibalizing retail sales or, or damaging some kind of relationship that you've built over years with these retailers? Interesting. That's probably the number one reason why some large CPG companies have traditionally moved relatively slowly towards DTCs. They've been very respectful of the relationships that they have with their retail partners because they don't want to create channel conflict. They don't want to cannibalize sales in physical retail. And because some retailers uh, don't appreciate it when a manufacturer also starts selling directly. But there's now so many people doing it that that's to some extent less of a problem. Uh, But it does still exist. And actually, my advice to certainly large CPG incumbent players is try and think how you can produce products that are differentiated for the D2C channel. So, uh, and that can just be as simple as, as packaging and sizing and price pack architecture. But sometimes it does mean looking at launching new product lines um, and doing something different that differentiates itself from your retail space. So, but absolutely, if you are selling the same products that you're selling into the retail space, don't go undercutting your retail channel. So, which is why you've got to have an eye on pricing and pricing tactics as well, um, because your retail your retail partners really won't like it if you are able to shift the product cheaper than they can. Um, so, yeah. So, one of the ways, multiple ways of avoiding channel conflict, but the absolute golden rule is don't don't undercut your own channel your own channel partners. So, yeah. The- That's a a fascinating point you had too about looking at differentiated products because it it really makes you think of, uh, you know, uh, the blockbusters of the world when it's like, okay, we're going to get into streaming. So we're just going to try to basically take what we did in store and put it on a streaming service or something like that. And, you know, they had a lot of other problems, but, you know, uh, it's the thought of maybe it isn't just a matter of taking this product that you sell on the shelf and just making it available. It's, being more purposeful with it. Yeah. And some of it is about being really smart. You need to, you need to be thinking about how do I help the consumer achieve a particular outcome? And uh, what you might be selling a range of oral hygiene and dental products, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, why not build a DTC bundle where those come as a subscription service? So it might be the products that you normally range in retail, but you ship it to people in a package, in a bundle as a family oral hygiene kit. So you've reformulated what you've already got in stock as made goods, but you've reformulated it in a way that's more suitable for the DC channel as well. You've also got an opportunity in that your product isn't going to have to sit on a retailer's shelf. So to some extent, you can think about the sustainability aspect of how you package stuff as well. Because one of the big problems with DC is because it's delivered home, comes in a cardboard box. Okay, I want to see more people rethinking that and thinking about actually how do you more sustainably supply stuff to people? And you can put it into that mix of thinking about product proposition as well, how you bundle things, how you put things together, and how do you let consumers pick what goes in that bundle? So one of our one of our customers in Italy, who's a CPG company, um, lets lets people do things like put 
carts together across multiple brands. And that's a, I think that's a really key angle because nobody's just going to go and buy, go buy one brand. Uh, you know, maybe it's a cosmetics brand or maybe it's a snack brand or maybe it's a skincare brand. Consumers are used to kind of uh, electronic grocery retail these days and they're not necessarily going to discriminate uh, and, and just purposely come to you just for that one category of product. So if you've got multiple categories of products, bring those brands together into a form of multi-brand marketplace where people can buy all of those things together in a bundle and then it makes the price point for the shipping and the distribution much more appealing as well to the consumer. So if you're operating in a multi-brand space, huge amount of opportunity to use your finished goods and uh, as, as they currently exist, but reformulate them as a kind of a deliverable proposition uh, you know, use it in a consumer curated selection. It sounds fun, like a fun space, honestly. It, it's almost like it's it. not the Wild West, but even, you know, if you're creative and willing to try out new things, fail fast, it sounds like the possibilities are almost endless right now of figuring out what's going to work for you. It, it really is. And it's an area of huge growth. So, I mean, last, last year, North America, consumer products saw 46% revenue growth in direct consumer. And that's in a year where... In truth, CP actually did quite well last year. So CP traditionally was, on average, it was growing 1% or 2% if it was growing at all. Last year, most of the large CP companies grew somewhere between 4 and 6%. And that's because all of that money that people previously spent out of home in Horeca, in bars, cafes, restaurants, all shifted to home. And mm. everybody shifted to doing more home cooking, more home baking, um, trying out new stuff at home, having all that alcohol delivered to home. Um, and that suits CP companies kind of like with an in-home proposition. So those those that were more exposed to the whole record trade, like some of the alcohol and beverage companies, didn't have such a great year. But some of the ones that were doing uh, kind of like ingredients and packaged food did actually really well. So and they've seen they've all seen DTC growing. Yeah. So what do you see as the future of this? Because it is so much experimental, mm. you can try different things. How do you see this trajectory playing out? Now, obviously, I, you know, you can't predict five years out from now, but even incrementally yeah. next six months into the next year, what type of shifts or any changes do you see? Well, certainly things I've got my eye on at the moment are um, there's, a, there's a convergence coming between social and commerce and media. Um, so we started, and it's been running for a few years now, but people making purchases through Instagram, through Facebook, through Google, through YouTube, through even chat channels, that's grown in prevalence. Um, so there's this heady mix of being able to get a product into a, uh, a space where consumers are spending their time. I mean. Consumers, 2021, consumers predicted to spend 930 hours on mobile internet uh, this year, which it, it sounds like an obscene amount of time. And then you think about your own behavior with the device and you think, oh, actually, no, that's probably about right. <laughs> they probably um, didn't survey me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some people are way off that map. Yeah. Some people are way off. <laughs> so, but but it, all, it all means people are spending more time in digital devices than they are in front of physical shelves. So, so rethinking how you present products to people, both in the channels that people are spending time, but getting their attention as well. So there's, there's a social commerce piece in this, which I think is also going to power the growth of DTC, but getting people's attention in interesting new ways. And I think with the arrival of 5G as well and faster devices, we're going to see video. I mean, video is already the most 
kind of like engaging medium you can place adverts in a social space in mm -hmm. in fact if your adverts aren't video based they tend to just get swiped uh swipe up anyway um it's just whether you see some compelling content within about the first you know second before you decide to swipe past it it's got to grab your attention so that personalized video aspect is important but we're seeing the rise of people doing live video selling um and again we we're working with partners in our sapio space people like tv page out of san diego who specialize in this so they specialize in having influencers ambassadors um, and even brands own staff presenting products on video that people can then just buy there and then um, and that can be pre-recorded video which is shared in the social space it can even be live streaming as well and we're seeing huge amounts of that in asia pacific in china in japan uh, and some of those markets uh, with much more live-based selling, uh, and which it's people access how, through a social space. It's funny how things come full circle because that's basically QVC. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. For those of us who are for the yeah, for those of us who are kind of go, I'm sure we've seen this idea before. So, but, yeah. but now it's much more personal, and it's in the palm of your hand. So, and sometimes you know, a good influencer is telling you something useful about the product and is, is helping you understand the choices that you can make. You see loads in cosmetics and skincare in particular, um, but all in, in all spaces, I, you know, you can, you can go to those kind of influences and see how to change component parts in your broken washing machine. You can buy, you can understand how to change the head by the, the bulbs on the headlamps of your car. So, and then be sold the product while you're looking at the video. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting as, as you were talking through it too, it's, it's even more now that, cause a lot of the times, especially with CP, we buy, unless it's like a necessity or need you're buying because of a vision of what it's going to going to make you, you'll become yeah. this by making this purchase and that having that influencer or someone selling it to you live is seeing literally what purchasing this is going to make you look like or feel yeah. like. So I, I can imagine how impactful that is. Whereas, you know, we joke about QVC. It was some random person you never seen before showing you what a dress could look like. And you're like, I'm going to really have to work to picture myself in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm completely subject to it as well. So because when I'm not working on thinking about CP, I'm fiddling around with synthesizers. And, and I'm terrible for looking at kind of like demos of gear and equipment. And um, yeah, I, I have bought items just having seen kind of like a demo and thought I need, I need, I need that. So, yeah. so convergence to kind of like video and direct selling is going to be potent. Yeah, with with guitars, whenever I'm looking up, like learning how to play a song or or a certain, you know, someone teaching me a pattern or scale. And then yeah. they're like, you know, this thing helped me learn this. I'm like, well, dang, I guess I need that. Uh, you know, <laughs> little things like that. So, no, that's 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 fascinating. Well, I, you know, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I think we we fleshed it out and uh, I appreciate you joining. No, it's been great. Thank you very much for having me. Loved the conversation. <laughs>